0: This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Cavalry Audio
0: From Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Shadow Girls, an in-depth investigation into the victims of the Green River Killer. You're listening to Episode 8, Polarity. In September of 2001, Detective Tom Jensen had been at home working in his yard when he got that historic call from the crime lab. Nearly two decades after Wendy Cofield, Deborah Bonner... Marsha Chapman, Cynthia Hines, and Opal Mills were discovered in the Green River. The DNA from the truck painter, Gary Ridgway, matched seminal fluid on three of the victims. Gary Ridgway was physically connected to the case, and the Green River Task Force was resurrected. But remember, that was on a need-to-know basis. Few knew, because those investigators had learned the hard way what it was to be patient. That DNA was a physical link to a few of the victims, but it was far from a slam dunk. Hadn't they learned to take nothing for granted when it came to catching a killer who had eluded them for nearly two decades? They believed that Gary Ridgway was the Green River Killer, but they knew they had to get those ducks in a row before they made their move to arrest him on murder charges. They needed time, time to get more samples from the case to the lab to connect Ridgeway to the other murders. So they put a surveillance detail together to follow him, hoping he would get sloppy and lead them to some of the trophies they believe he'd be unable to stop himself from keeping.
2: You know, we knew it was him because we had the... Uh the DNA hit. Yeah. And we're waiting for more DNA. as so We didn't want to go just on one case. We wanted to build it up to three or four before we actually drop the hammer on him. But we also wanted to know what he was doing. Was he out there still soliciting prostitutes? Problem was he lived in, in uh, Auburn and he'd go to work very early in the morning at Kenworth and he lived down a very long road from his house out to the main drag. Very difficult to surveil him. Very difficult to follow him. You see him on, you see those when they follow on TV and there are a couple of cars back. Well, that just that's not how it's done. And certainly not how it's done when it's dark out at 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning. He'd make us in a heartbeat. And the last thing we wanted him to do was to us to figure out that he was on to him. Because there was a school of thought. And Dave Reichert to this day believes that Gary Ridgway had souvenirs. Souvenirs from his killings. Whether there was earrings or clothing or whatever it was. So their fear was if he knows we're on to him, he'll get rid of all that stuff and we need to tie them to other other crimes.
0: They were testing more of those 10,000 pieces of evidence, but this was a huge issue in the case. DNA technology had finally caught up, but a larger problem still existed. Despite their meticulous collection at so many locations, there just wasn't a lot of biological evidence left at the crime scenes because most of the victims that were recovered were skeletal which meant without biological material like seminal fluid, it would be difficult to connect Gary Ridgway to his victims. Trophies were the hard physical evidence that could connect him to the case. Retired King County Sheriff John Urquhart was the public information officer at the time, and he says they were shocked when they realized what Gary Ridgway was up to in 2001.
2: So they're trying to follow him. It's not working very well. They'd try to follow him home, and they would follow him home. Uh, and every, every now and again, they'd follow him uh, during the, in the morning hours. Uh, and on more than one occasion, he'd drive from his house in Auburn to Pacific Highway South, drive up Pacific Highway South, and go down to Kenworth in Renton. That's not the most direct route. It's it, not something you do. So, you know, we're thinking, Jesus, he is still on the prowl. More than one occasion, he would drive down a freeway on-ramp and stop over the side for 10 or 15 or 20 seconds and then continue on. There's only one reason to do that. You're looking to see if you're being tailed. So that made us kind of interested. So we're going along and we had an arrest date and I I can't remember what the date was. I think it was sometime in November, if I remember correctly. And one of the detectives, Sue Peters, drove past Ridgeway's house, old house, mother's house in the city of SeaTac, McMinnon Heights. She saw a sold sign on it. And she didn't even know it had been for sale. So that kind of got her interested. So she starts working the computer. And for whatever reason, she ran what we called seeking, which was all kinds of information uh, about people, booking information. And she ran up his name, which we hadn't done before for a long time. And, oh, my God, he'd been arrested for soliciting, a, for solicitation on a John patrol that we didn't know about we had never heard about it because the the task force that we had then was so tightly sequestered every we basically i would for all practical purposes wouldn't even admit it existed and certainly no one in the sheriff's office without a need to know really knew what was going on nobody knew about the dna yet certainly nobody knew we were going after ridgeway except this very small select group of people and to find out that he is out there actively looking for prostitutes, we are gobsmacked by that. Absolutely gobsmacked.
0: According to the police report, on November 16th, 2001, Ridgway waved money at the decoy through the open window of his Ford Ranger pickup truck from across the street. For the very first time, that undercover decoy will share her story with us. Over 20 years later, Jeannie Walford, who is now a King County detective with the sheriff's office, says that bitterly cold November day in 2001 is one she will never forget. Because unbeknownst to her, the man she would come to arrest for soliciting prostitution on the SeaTac Strip was the Green River Killer.
3: And I remember this day, keeping in mind that at the time that we did this John Patrol, The Green River Killer was somebody I'd grown up in this area and somebody that you read about in the paper. He was the boogeyman of our time. But at the time in 2001, I didn't realize the Green River Task Force had been reformed. I had no idea they had anything going on with Green River at that time. So, you know, that day when we were running the John Patrol, nobody knew the name Gary Ridgeway was anything special at that time.
0: When Jeannie stepped out that day as an undercover officer, pretending to be a prostituted person, she had four years under her belt as a patrol officer, and she'd been tapped for a special assignment. This was about the third time that she'd worked as a decoy for the vice squad on a John patrol.
3: So this particular day, I, I remember just wearing pretty much street clothes, jeans. In fact, I, I bought a coat at Goodwill. It was a, you know, true 80s style, stonewashed jean jacket, <laughs> I still have the thing because it's kind of my souvenir from this day. It was more believable, I guess. It it didn't, nothing fancy. I'm I'm not shopping at Nordstrom. I'm getting stuff from Goodwill because the the bottom line is these girls live a hard life and it's going to reflect in in every part of them. Usually within five minutes of stepping out, we had at least one or two people driving up and approaching us. It
0: didn't take long. One of these Johns made it crystal clear what he was after.
3: I remember looking across the street and this red pickup truck, it pulled off to the shoulder. So on the other side of the street from me across those four lanes, and I see this driver roll down his window and he had cash in his hands and he was waving cash at me. And I thought, wow, that was pretty obvious. I'd never had anybody do that before. And as soon as that happened, he suddenly sped away. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, that was a little odd. And not a minute or two later, I see the same truck gone down the street and turned around somewhere. And now he's pulling into the parking lot at Motel 6. Parks kind of near me, but not right next to me. And he gets out of his truck, this man, who's by himself. And he goes back to the uh, tailgate of his truck and pulls the tailgate down. But the, the strangest thing was, is he wasn't making eye contact with me, and he wasn't saying anything to me or, or indicating anything.
0: The man waited for Jeannie to walk over. Jeannie asked him if he wanted a date, that she had a motel room. He said he wanted to date, but not there because he spotted an undercover officer nearby. But that didn't mean he wasn't interested in buying sex.
3: He said, "Well, how about you meet me down at the Bank of America, which was like a block or two away, and out of view of that Chaser car? I may add, and that we would do a car date." I remember reading him his Miranda rights. You know, you had the right to remain silent, but he was he was very relaxed about the whole thing. And in fact, of all the Johns we had that day, he was seemingly the most normal guy uh, of the group. That's. That's the thing that was absolutely frightening once I learned later who he really was.
0: That man was Gary Ridgway. And during that arrest, one sort of odd thing stood out. Just one. It was really just a kind of shake-your-head thing, but later, it would chill the arresting officers to the bone. When Ridgway was arrested for soliciting and given the opportunity to make his one phone call, he responded with, you can contact the Green River Task Force. They know me real well. In retrospect, that officer thought the comment was odd, but it didn't ring any alarm bells. Remember, from their point of view that day that he'd been arrested, the task force had been dismantled over a decade before. Very few knew of its existence or that Gary Ridgway's DNA had come through, connecting him to multiple victims in the GRK investigation. And after that John Patrol, Jeannie went on to life as usual, but that all changed two weeks later, when she was on her day off and received a very strange and cryptic phone call from a colleague, Detective John Matson. He told her that she needed to come to the Regional Justice Center right away. When she met up with Detective Matson at the Regional Justice Center, she would describe him not as giddy per se, but electric. Something big was happening. and Jeannie had somehow become a part of that.
3: I remember he opens the door to their bullpen area of offices, and I see the poster of the Green River girls, like, you know, per- picture after picture from all the Green River killer killings from the 80s. And I, I kind of, it starts to sink in on me what this is about. The room is just energized. People were excited.
0: In an interview room, Detective Matson laid down the mugshot of Gary Ridgway, The photo was from his solicitation arrest from way back in 1982. She recognized him right away. Detective Mattson asked her to detail everything related to her encounter with this John that she'd just arrested two weeks before. He told her that he believed this man was the GRK. The first thing that ran through her mind was the latex gloves that she had fished out of his pocket. You
3: know, when they brought out his photo, I realized, oh my, he had, latex gloves in his pocket too. I don't know what that means, but there you go. When they got me on tape that I that I that didn't that wasn't in my actual written report because at the time it didn't seem significant.
0: After Jeannie's interview with Detective Madsen, she was brought into the fold under the strictest of confidence.
3: This is the first time I've told this story, you know, publicly. After this was told to me at that night, I was really kind of scared, and a little in awe. Once I kind of was interviewed at that time, Sheriff Reichert showed up, and a lot of important people started filing into the office. And they had a big roundtable meeting that I was sitting there at. And it was like, okay, the arrest is going to happen on Friday. And uh, so we have a lot of work to do. Again, everybody is just has my reaction. They're, they're amazed, surprised, they're excited um, because nobody realized he was active still.
0: Jeannie says over the years, she's lost a lot of sleep thinking about what could have happened that night if she hadn't been an undercover officer with a gun surreptitiously hidden on her body.
3: I feel like, you know, had I been an actual working girl on the strip, would I have come home that day? I don't know the idea that if I was a real working girl on the strip that I would have gotten in a car with him and driven somewhere. Uh, It's frightening to think of now. Uh, Lots of lots of what if scenarios went through my mind, of course. So I was scared. And that's I think, you know, for those three days before he was arrested, you know, blinds down doors locked and gun close by. I was really nervous because the only name he had was mine. I mean, if he realized he was being tailed, my name was on the John report, the arrest report that had just happened to him. I was the, the person who was fresh in his mind.
0: Then public information officer John Urquhart says they absolutely believed that the GRK was looking for more than a so-called car date with Jeannie that night.
2: Then we read her case. And not only had he waved money at her, but he tried to get her to go around the corner where his truck was parked. and the, the decoys, there is they, they have signals and there is no way they are ever going to get into a car with a customer or go around the corner or go out of the sight of all these people that are watching them. Because, you know, it's, it's a very, very dangerous scenario. We think he probably would have killed her if he could have gotten her into that car, which wasn't going to happen. But had it been someone that wasn't a police officer, that certainly could have happened. Yeah. So he's still out there. I mean, we were just, our jaws were down to here over this. And I was I was at the meeting that they all, the, the Riker was there and all the task force members. So I know about this firsthand. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We got a week or 10 days, whatever it was, uh, until we plan to make this arrest. And the consensus was, and everybody agreed, no, we'll give it two days, three at the most. He's got to get, we got to get him off the street. We've got to get him arrested. And so we did.
0: The Shadow Girls will continue after a word from our sponsors. And now, back to The Shadow Girls. Remember earlier in the podcast, you heard from Judith. We referred to her as the truck painter's girlfriend, who he met in 1985 at the White Shutter's restaurant at a Parents Without Partners gathering, which was located off of Pacific Highway. Judith would go on to marry the truck painter, a.k.a. Gary Ridgway, in 1988. On November 30, 2001, when Gary Ridgway was being arrested at his place of employment for murder, two detectives were dispatched to Judith and Gary Ridgway's home, unannounced. Judith had no idea what was happening when she answered the door and saw two plainclothes detectives at her doorstep asking to come in for a chat. One of the detectives asked Judith why she thought they might be there. She thinks it might be because of her husband's recent arrest for soliciting prostitution two weeks before. Detectives don't yet tell her that her husband, Gary Ridgway, at that moment was being arrested at the Kenworth plant on multiple charges of homicide related to the Green River Killer investigation.
3: You
4: were, you were upset when we came to the door and... And you mentioned there had been something that just recently happened to Gary Yes. Um, out on Pacific Highway. What, what do you know about that, Judy? He told me that he, he stopped and um, had to close the window on it, the door on his truck, the mm-hmm. back one. And that's when they came over and arrested him. Did he tell you what he was arrested for? Well, he didn't exactly, but... Uh, Officer that called and talked to me on the phone said that it was soliciting. Okay, what was your what was your feeling about that or your reaction when the officer I, told you that? I said that can't be. It didn't sound like him. What did the officer actually tell you? Well, that some people's husbands go out and do things that the wives that the wives don't know about. Yeah. Did that upset you? Well, yes, I got a little shook, but I didn't. He wouldn't do anything like that. Okay. He's friendly. uh, He's a friendly person, so he he, probably looked at somebody and smiled. And and you think the officer might have just arrested him because of that? uh Uh-huh. He's always friendly. Even when you're walking by somebody like in the store or you're shopping and, you know, smile and say hello. Did you ask Gary what happened? I asked him if he was okay. He said he's okay. He said he didn't do anything. Did you pick him up from jail? No. I talked to him on the phone. Okay, so did he call you from jail? Yes. Okay, and did he tell you why he was arrested? Did he tell you it was for loitering? No, not exactly. I, asked, I just asked him if he was okay. Okay. He said he was okay, did and you, he didn't do anything. Would it would it surprise you if, if he was trying to date a girl on the highway, a prostitute? Yes, it would surprise me. Would it hurt you? It would hurt me, and, you know, wonder what, what did I do wrong, or... Or what did he do wrong? Not necessarily Mm -hmm. you, right?
0: Judith would tell detectives that she and Ridgeway never discussed prostitution.
4: Do you remember him ever before that search warrant incident and the police talking to you? Do you ever remember him telling you he'd been arrested earlier in his life? Prior to that? Prior to meeting him? Well, Mm -hmm. did he ever say in the early 80s, prior to the search warrant in 87, that he'd been picked up? And arrested for picking up prostitutes? No. So if I were to tell you today he's been arrested before, back in the 80s? In that, which 80s? Um. May 1982. May 1982. Would you remember that incident? I didn't know him. Okay. So that's new information that you've never known? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. All right. Has he ever said anything to you about prostitutes, like, you know, they're garbage, or he likes talking with them, or, you know, they're just ordinary people, or what's your feeling? What do you think he thinks of prostitutes, or what has he told you he thinks of them? We've never talked to them that okay. much. Sure. So it's never come up mm-hmm. in any your conversations? No.
0: The interesting thing here is that detectives know that Gary Ridgway is going to be arrested if he wasn't already arrested at that time. And they'd already been talking to her for over an hour. They're trying to get information. They know they don't have much time left on the clock before they will tell her why they are really there.
4: Back in the 80s, when the task force did a search warrant, um, there was a lot of circumstantial evidence that made the investigators back then I think Gary could be responsible for Green River victims being killed. Are you familiar with Green River? Do you know how many women? Oh, I've seen the pictures and how many, and, you know, it's sad. Do you have any information mm-hmm. in your house about Green River? I mean, is there any books or readings? or? Yes, I have kept it and tucked away, you know, in the bottom of the drawer, put away. Okay. Mm-hmm. Articles or magazines mm-hmm. or—it's not Gary's choice. It was my choice. I just kind of kept them there and
0: folded them up and stuffed them away.
4: Excuse me. Okay, story. I'm going to shut the tape off real quick.
0: Did you catch the doorbell ringing in the background? Listen closely to this next clip because a bombshell is about to go off.
4: There was a probably a one or two minute break. Is that correct? Yes. And it's sixteen. 42 hours, we're back on tape. Are you aware this is still being recorded? Yes. Um, where was I? Oh, okay. We were talking a little bit about Green River. Um, if you, can we continue? You don't have to answer that. Well Yeah? I'm busy. Talk to you later. Okay, she just had a brief phone call and she hung up on the person, told him to call back, right? Okay, so can we continue here? We need you to shut that off real quick so we can talk about this, please. Okay. Tina, my sister-in-law. Okay, that was Tina, your sister-in-law? hmm excuse me, yeah. Okay, you know we're still being recorded, the tape's yes. gone? Yes, yes. Back in basically 1982 to 84, there was quite a few females that were... Uh, missing from Pacific Highway and suspected of being killed. A lot of them were actually killed, and Gary was a focus to the task force back then. And that's why the search warrant was at your residence, okay? There's been a lot of technology that has come out, DNA, do you understand what that is? Those are tests? Yes. name. Um, boy, that's annoying. <laughs> anyway. A lot of those victims that were found back then, when there's an autopsy, when there's an autopsy from the victims, samples are collected, which are preserved, okay? Mm-hmm. So a lot of those females... What is going on? I'm, I'm trying to get to that right now, but uh, it's very annoying with the phone keep ringing. We'd like to...
5: No,
4: explain to you. Hello. We can't to the phone right now. Are you ready? Okay. Phone rang again. Okay, we're back on tape. Okay. Don't I have a right to know what's going on? Oh, you. I'm, I'm going to get right okay. to that point now. Gary was a suspect back then, and we sent recently a lot of samples from these women to the crime laboratory for DNA purposes. It turns out we have three cases now confirmed that Gary's DNA was left inside of them, meaning he had sex with them. His DNA was left on three of the prostitutes. So again, he is the focus of an investigation by Green River Task Force, who has just recently been activated at up up again. And now we have the recent incident that just occurred on Pacific Highway on the 16th. And uh, it was an undercover police decoy. And Gary was trying to meet up with her again for sex, for $30, okay? And I know a lot of this is probably shocking to you, but we have these facts now before us, and that's what we need to talk about. He is, again, a suspect in those those cases. And we know you're probably sitting here as an innocent party, and we want to help you through this. Has he ever talked to you about harming any of these women? No. Is it feasible that he had sex with these women? I mean, do you believe that? or do No, you... I don't believe that. He's always been so so gentle and There and might be another and... side to him that you don't know. After almost eighteen years, mm-hmm. this happened. A lot of this happened prior to you being married to him. Has he ever done any reading on the Green River killings? I mean, do you have a book here, actually? Mm-hmm. Can okay. you want me to get them? Well, you can sit here. You can just tell me about them. You don't have to get them for okay, me. it's some of the articles and different things, and they're in an the envelope. And where are those at? In the bottom drawer. Of you're pointing to this I desk. Guess. Okay. And who cut those out? Did Gary cut those out? I probably cut out maybe one or two, and he might <coughs> have cut them out. OK, how many articles? Remember, I don't know. It's in an envelope, and then there was a book. Where but book, it's always been in the drawer. Where did the book come from? I don't know if it came from the store or the swap meet or someplace. Or I, I don't know. Is that something you brought in the house, or he brought in the house? He probably brought it in. OK, so and you don't, didn't bring it in. He didn't read it. It just we just put it in the drawer. Okay, but is that something he brought to your home? That book when it, when that was happening and going on, you know, we seen we probably seen the book at the someplace and picked it up. I don't I don't exactly remember. All right. So it's it's pretty serious, and there's going to be a lot of media here. Do you want to go off tape for a second? Yes, Yes, please. Okay, she's going to use the restroom, and the time is 1447 hours.
0: After Judith is told that her husband, Gary Ridgway, has been arrested as a suspect in the Green River Killer investigation.
4: When we followed him recently, and back in 1987 when the original task force people followed him, he did a lot of U-turns. I mean, drive down the highway, u turn go back. Are you sure it was him? Positive it was him. We've we've been following him recently and he's doing the same type of driving. Has he ever done U-turns while you've been in the car? Like constant, like go down Pacific Highway, do a U-turn, drive a little ways, do another U-turn? He... We did it when we'd missed a yard sale or something. But what about just normal driving when you rode down Pack Highway with Gary? Does he do that while you're in the car? No. So that surprises you that we have observed that is that what you're saying yes that's abnormal did
5: did you ever find condoms you know new condoms in the house
6: no no
5: so it surprised you if we said we did the warrant on the pickup and we found condoms actually brand new ones um, placed in different locations in this pickup up underneath the fenders in 1987. In Under the fenders? Inside the, up inside the fender well, wedged in by the frame, still in the packages, like they were ready to be used. But hidden. You look surprised. Mm. <laughs> Does he What have, about now? Anything in there? I have no idea.
4: The truck hasn't been searched yet. Is there any condoms around the house? Or No. Has he ever used condoms with you? No.
0: Before the interview is over, Judith is asked if she will testify against Gary Ridgeway.
4: I know you care a lot about him, and and you didn't know him in the early 80s. Um, If if this ever went to trial, how would you feel about testifying to what you told us? And saying what I've said? Yeah. I mean, the man that That you know. The man that you know. The man that I know is wonderful. So would you mind testifying to that in court, the things you know about Gary? I would tell him everything is good about him. He's been the best. I love love him. Okay, I'm going to end this statement. Today's date is 1130 of 2001. Time is 1725 hours.
0: King County Sheriff Dave Reichert was about to announce the capture of the so-called GRK. But according to John Urquhart, who was the public information officer at the time, even that announcement was complicated.
2: So now I knew what was going to be coming. And I can tell you there's no way they would have had to pry me out of there with a crowbar. Out of that job, (laughs) I I wanted to be there because I wanted to manage it. This was going to be a huge worldwide operation from a from a a a public information standpoint, and I wanted to make sure it was done right to protect the sheriff's office to protect Dave.
0: Well, what's interesting too is that it happened right September 11th. You know, up against that. Um, Do you remember how you felt about here this historic case? It's solved, and yet the most horrific thing on American soil, some may say, happened.
2: You know, I don't even remember. If you hadn't told me, I never would have put those two together. Because you were right
0: in the the storm of it, huh? Clearly,
2: it was was horrible, you know, uh, September 11th and all of that. And I had the same reaction everybody else did, but I've never equated the two. It was doing what what we were doing. The other thing that happened, I think, at that same meeting is we're talking a little bit about the press aspect of it. And how we're going to, they wanted to, to tout that we caught the Green River Killer. And I said, no, absolutely not. And the detectives were pretty much ups, pretty uh, me upset with me for saying that. Why not? We've caught the Green River Killer. No, I says, you have caught someone who killed the first three or four victims of that, but you have no probable cause to believe that he committed all the rest. And they're going, but he did, but he did. I says I don't disagree. He probably did. But I'm not I don't think we should go out there touting that we got we caught the Green River killer after all this publicity over all these years when we can't say definitively that he killed all of them or even some of them. All we know is he killed these, I think it was three at the time. We know that. So I don't want I don't think we should do that. And uh, Sheriff Record says, no, I agree with Urquhart that we shouldn't do that. So if you'll notice
0: now that you're saying that, I remember that.
2: If you read the statement that he read, which I wrote 100%, and he didn't change a word of it, it doesn't say that we caught the Green River Killer. I told him, if they ask you, is this the Green River Killer, don't go there. Because we don't know yet. And the worst thing, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to manage all this, the worst thing that could happen is a year or six months or whenever down the line, and we find out somebody else Killed 10 of them or 20 of them or 50 of them.
0: Opens the door. We Bert. just
2: didn't know. It, it just destroys our credibility. I says, the others will come as time goes on. But let's just do these first ones first and see what happens.
0: Yeah. I think that I, as you were saying that, I, I feel like the confusion with 9-11. And then I remember, because I lived in Renton. I mean, I remember where I was because it just felt felt full circle. Like, Oh, my gosh, the Kenworth plant is literally right down the street.
2: Exactly.
0: Sheriff Dave Reichert.
1: I still meet people today who say, I know exactly where I was when you were on TV and you said we caught the Green River Killer, which I didn't really say, but everybody knew because we only had him on four. Uh, And then a couple, three or four weeks later, we ended up with uh, three more charges on paint evidence. But that shows to me that, you know, the impact was sort of like, now there'll be some people not old enough to remember this, but in in 1980, I think, right, Mount St. Helens erupted.
0: Yes, Um, yes. Right. I know know where I was. was. (laughs)
1: There you go. And uh, it's that same, it had that same sort of an impact on people. When we made the announcement that he had been arrested, that that killer had been taken off the street, people who watched that who heard that who were here remember exactly where they were when that announcement was made and and that just shows you the power of uh you know that that case held over the community for so long
0: on november 30th 2001 investigators showed up at the kenworth plant 14 years after that search warrant had been executed in 1987 but this time Gary Ridgway wasn't given a ride to Mommy and Daddy's house. This time, his legs were spread apart, and he was frisked, handcuffed, read his Miranda rights, and taken away to the King County Regional Justice Center just a few miles away from Peck Bridge. There, it was explained to him that his DNA, taken from that gauze chew, matched material collected from Carol Christensen, Marcia Chapman, Cynthia Hines, and Opal Mills.
1: The DNA got even better after that. Dr. Himmack did this brilliant thing. She had basically just a partial profile on Opal Mills. At some point in time, the lab had mounted uh, one of our pubic hairs on on a slide. She took that slide and she put it in some kind of wash and did something with it. And she found one sperm and she made a positive match to Opal Mills. So now we had two positive matches. And then another scientist then uh, linked Ridgeway to a, a third victim, Carol Christensen. And so now we have three positive matches based on DNA, and then there was the, the linkage from Opal uh, Mills' Marsha Chapman to Cynthia Hines, who was, uh, who was found in the same, same little cluster. So that's how we ended up with our first five charges.
0: The murder of Deborah Bonner was also added to those charges. Officials believe they had finally collared the GRK, But the daunting reality of bringing a case of this magnitude to trial began to sink in. There was an estimated one million pages of documentation related to the investigation. All of those pages would need to be turned over as discovery to Ridgway's lawyers. And a trial would cost the county millions, not just to prosecute, but the county was also on the hook for millions more to pay for Ridgway's defense. After Ridgway was arrested, his family had hired Tony Savage as his lead attorney. Not long after, his attorney claimed that Ridgway was indigent. A month after Ridgway's arrest, a King County judge approved additional attorneys, two defense investigators, two paralegals, and money for the defense to do its own DNA testing. was approved for DNA testing and $290,000 for a defense forensic pathologist and a computer tech to help with all that evidence. For the next two years, the county continued to build its case, which included an appeal from Sheriff Riker to elected officials to allocate them more resources for the expensive DNA testing that could possibly link Ridgway to other cases. And all the while, Gary Ridgway sat in his cell feigning innocence He pled not guilty to the murder charges. A turning point in the case came in March 2003. Paint globules sent to a private laboratory found tiny spheres of sprayed paint on the clothing of Wendy Cofield and Deborah Estes. This paint was identical to the highly specialized brand used at the Kenworth Trucking Plant. It was a game changer. Then-PIO John Urquhart explains how the King County Prosecutor Norm Maling and Sheriff Dave Reichert reconsidered their position.
2: Dave says, you know, to Norm, we've got a lot of other victims out there that we haven't identified. We don't know how many of these he's good for. We don't know where their bodies are. Norm says, Dave, I'm going to stop you right there. I'm going to stop you right there. I am not going to plea bargain the death penalty, period. And Dave says, that's the only way we're going to solve these cases. You know, we need to be able to question him. We need to be able to, he says, Dave, don't even ask me. It's not going to happen. Well, of course, it did happen after they got the paint transfer. And Tony Savage saw, yikes, this guy is going to get executed. Then he went to Norm Mailing.
0: Is this the defense attorney?
2: Defense attorney, one of the two or three that he had. But the, the the main defense attorney, been around forever, great reputation, and said he will spill his guts. He will tell the detectives everything he knows if you take the detect if you take the the um death penalty off the table norm went back to dave said okay dave says one condition all of the victims families have to agree to it and Dave went to almost he says everyone but virtually every family member that he could this is what the op- your options are we can either go for the death penalty with ridgeway who's in jail of course or we can not, and he will, hopefully, we can find the remains of your victim or at least find out what happens. And they, every single one of them agreed. So that's why Ridgway got out of facing the death penalty.
0: Making a deal with the devil to get the truth would be controversial. Martha Linahan from OPS said crushingly, the victims of the Green River Killer can't tell us what happened to them. Yeah, they're children. They're children. So for us... Um It was very important for us to bring the
5: focus and to amplify, just to give voice to the the girls
0: and women who could not speak for themselves because they're dead. That weighty decision had fallen on the shoulders of the King County Prosecutor Norm Maling, who would later explain that the plea was not for the killer, but a path toward healing for the families and the community. He would later say... When I see the face of justice in this case, it is those young women I see. They deserve to have the truth of their fates known to the world. I see each family impacted by these crimes. They deserve to know the truth about the fate of their loved ones. And the families who have endured decades, not knowing the whereabouts of their daughters, they deserve to have a proper burial. Finally, the face of justice reflects our whole community. We have all suffered this terrible trauma known as the Green River Murders. We deserve to know the truth.
1: The average citizen driving to and from work or to the shopping center, to the store and back home again, didn't see those little girls, although there were hundreds of them out there. They weren't visible to the community because, you know, part of it was they lived in an underworld, didn't want to be seen, but the other part is when they were seen, really the community didn't want to see them. They were there, but they wanted to pretend like they weren't there.
0: We'll be right back with the Shadow Girls after a word from our sponsors. And now, we continue with the Shadow Girls. When we started this series, I shared how those two words, little girls, had so resonated with me. But really, it was the recognition that some girls are valued over others. That truth became the fuel for this series, how I remembered the victims of the Green River Killer being portrayed. I didn't realize then, but it was an old wound that I had unwittingly been reacting to since I was a little girl. The origin became clearer and clearer as I began looking through the Green River victim files, read about their lives, what they'd been going through, what they might have been running away from. And Dr. Debra Boyer helped put this further into perspective. I mean, I I will say my impression as a young person was they were bad girls. They were doing bad things. You didn't want to do that or that could happen to you.
7: That is right. That's how society excuses this. They're bad. They're spoiled. It it, it comes out of of a lot of cultural references and religious references that are 10,000 years old. So you can do whatever you want. They become objectified, which is a term that we've learned through feminism, what that means for women in all walks of life to be objectified. This is the most extreme example. You can do whatever you want to an object. You can rape them. You can kill them. Nobody is really going to pay very much attention to that.
0: What does that do when that message gets across?
7: The issue of prostitution affects all women, even though we believe now we have advanced and progressed in our thinking because of, of the women's movement and the feminist movement. We have to understand this is a very short time period. And the good woman has really stood on the shoulders and on the backs of the, of the women who have been who were raped and murdered and violated and prostituted, that somehow we had to be separated. We had to create this pool of bad women to service normal men. And that is still reflected in the laws.
0: I know now that I had received this messaging and internalized it as a young girl. All the verbal and nonverbal cues about the importance of being good, not bad. And if through no fault of your own, you found yourself on the bad side, don't talk about abuse Otherwise, you could be labeled as damaged goods. As a child watching the news with my mom, deep down, I knew that what had happened to the victims of the Green River Killer wasn't their fault. Like many shadow girls, I understood that bad things did happen to little girls. Whether they were good or bad had nothing to do with it. The GRK's horrendous and grisly murder spree played and replayed as breaking news night after night for so long, it had fueled my own nightmares. And in a different but similarly twisted way, that messaging had been leveled against me, my mom, and my sister two years before that summer of 1982 when Wendy Cofield's body had been found. That I had deserved what had happened to me when I was eight years old. From my work on the GRK investigation, I realized that I had fused the faceless shadow man, the unknown stranger who had broken into our house and attacked me while I slept, with the GRK, who was murdering women and girls seemingly without consequence. Back then, neither the GRK or my attacker had been caught. Unlike the victims of the GRK, I survived the shadow man who attacked me, But the terror of him coming back to finish the job wasn't just a figment of my imagination.
6: Before, I'd never locked the doors. So after that happened, I made sure I locked all the doors. And the person, somebody came. I I was frozen. I couldn't believe I couldn't move. I was so scared because something must have happened. I just couldn't believe I was so scared that I couldn't move for my daughter to find out who
0: it was. What was it? Was it a sound? Was somebody jiggling the door lock? No,
6: somebody was
0: trying to get in. When I was eight years old, my mom, my sister, and I drove from Seattle to Santa Barbara in a brown Plymouth duster. Well, the, the duster that had the, that literally had the holes in the... <laughs> that's the one we drove to California? Yeah, yeah, the duster.
6: I'm, I, that's how desperate I was to drive without having the friggin' car looked at which I knew it probably wouldn't pass anything. I just wanted to get out of there.
0: You mean out of Washington?
6: Yeah, I wanted to get... My my thought was, I always felt like I got looked over because of my muscular dystrophy.
0: Which at the time, they didn't even know what it
6: was. Right. And I felt like if I would only do this, I'd get more money. If I only did this, I would get more money. Uh, Polarity was an opportunity for me to... I thought I would be healed. I thought I would have more confidence. I thought I would have more, you know, work better physically,
0: you know, with my hands.
6: All these things I did thinking that would help me get better.
0: The excitement of a road trip fizzled in record time when Rust Bucket's radiator kept rising into the red zone, my mom's tension palpable. Come on, girl, you can do it, she would say while tapping the dashboard. But her voice betrayed the truth of her feelings. She wasn't convinced. But my mother was nothing if not determined. Every half hour or so we'd pull over, crossing our fingers that we'd make it to a gas station before she blew. What I remember most about that journey was my mom flagging down random guys to help her twist the radiator top off because her hands didn't have the strength. My sister, who was three years older, and I slunk to the back seat set up our briefcase, which was a backgammon set, and commenced playing round after round. Anything to occupy our minds from our mother's desperation. It all felt like an omen for our destination in Santa Barbara, a commune called Polarity. My mom's mysterious illness and her contentious divorce from our dad had brought us to this place. Didn't dad's family think you were faking it with your disease? Oh, yeah, definitely.
6: Everybody thought I was. Um, Joe was the worst. At least he verbalized it the worst. What did he say, I, Carolyn? I don't even remember. It was did just
0: you say you're faking it.
6: And I I. I the, what I remember is the isolation, the loneliness.
0: I understand now that my mom was looking for an escape hatch. The fear of her prognosis that she'd be in a wheelchair by the time she was thirty. My dad's gaslighting and her own family's rejection.
6: When I told mom, when I came home and told mom I had. Uh, at that time, they thought I had mus- multiple sclerosis. She wa- turned and walked away from me. We were living in the house on Gove Street. She was living across the street, actually, and she I think she was babysitting. But that was just another situation where she, you know, she just couldn't handle it because of her own, you know...
0: Why did she just turn away from you? I don't know. After all the investigative work I had done as the co-host of the Scene of the Crime podcast which included research related to cult investigations, I saw our road trip to that Santa Barbara commune with fresh eyes, a different perspective, because through my work talking with experts on cult mind control, I had learned that there is a process to a cult leader's ability to woo a potential devotee. First, they zero in on a vulnerable person and build them up, promising to help them solve all their problems. Then, once they have the person under their control, they break them down, but promise them all the solutions to their problems. In this case, healing for my mom, all it requires is doing exactly what the cult leader says to do. Looking back, I realize just how vulnerable we were to this commune. My mom was a woman with two young children without a safety net who had sold all of her possessions to go on this quest to find healing and acceptance. Collectively, we were like lambs to the slaughter. The way I can describe it now was that, I mean, it was the typical cult, weird cult stuff. Right. Where they basically woo you in and build you up, and everybody's kind of a part of that. You know, like, we're going to do this. You know, we're going to give you healing. We're going to give you strength. Their
6: apparent purpose was all about healing, you know, changing your diet. So people were coming from all walks of life. A lot of it was, you know, healing from some kind of horrific disease like myself that wanted to be healed.
0: Right. But they also had this energy, this energy stuff. And I remember when we first got to California, we were assigned as a single mom we were assigned a um, a surrogate father. Oh, right. And I remember them trying to crack my neck. Do you remember that? And I wouldn't let them crack my neck. And Cheryl and I were like... Were crack you-? your neck? Why? I don't know.
6: I don't remember that.
0: I don't remember why.
6: Well, the energy is part of the healing process. You know, if you have... Like their basis polarity is... The basis of the healing is if you have... Like, say, if you have stiff joints or... You have pain in certain areas of your, your body, kind of like acupuncture. If you press on those meridians, you have e- energy points, and they're called meridians. And if you press on those certain meridians where the pain is, you press it until the pain goes away.
0: I know, but Cheryl and I weren't afflicted with the same energy pro- problems that you were, knock on. Right. So the fact that they were trying to, this surrogate father, was try, I feel like was trying to establish dominance and wanted to crack our necks, like some kind of like...
6: That's a good point.
0: And that could be. Yeah. So it was just weird from the beginning. We had no choice but to make the best of it as we settled into one of the bungalows on the property. I remember the kitchen was in the middle and then your bedroom was... In the front. In the front. I slept in the front.
6: <laughs> I think it was probably more like a living room, bedroom type. I mean, these are all small beach Bungalows, you know, from when people would come down to Santa Barbara and, you know,
0: vacation. But it was a whole complex of bungalows. There are so many unanswered questions about what happened that night. But one thing is clear. My mom is absolutely convinced that the perpetrator was a member of the commune. I I am
6: convinced that you were being, it was somebody within polarity. And
0: somebody had been watching you.
6: They knew what door to go in. They knew that I would be in another room.
0: That night, I was wearing a flannel nightgown with little pink flowers. I had a special blanket that I couldn't sleep without and my stuffed pink panther, who fit perfectly tucked under my arm. I had both of those things as my 11-year-old sister turned out the light and we went to bed. I remember feeling a stabbing pain between my legs. It woke me up, and yet I didn't believe I was awake. I felt like I was in a nightmare. "'I have the sense that I kept thinking I needed to wake up. "'I had no frame of reference for the physical pain "'that I was feeling, in the dark, in my bed, that night. "'No,' I said. "'I remember saying, stop. "'I tried to push whatever was causing the pain away, "'and that's when I felt a hand. "'The more I tried to push it away in the darkness, "'the harder it clenched down, jabbing, churning, "'ripping my insides. "'It wasn't stopping. "'It was getting worse.' Fear finally loosened my lungs. I screamed, a guttural sound I didn't even recognize as my own. I pushed to get away, and the thing latched on, started pulling me toward it in the dark. I just kept screaming and kicking, trying to free myself from the shadow man. Then he was gone. Intense brightness illuminated the room, momentarily blinding me. Then I saw bright red, blood, on my sheets, on my legs, on my pushed-up nightgown my underwear were gone what had just happened to me there were large wet footprints on the carpet and I have a vague memory of a police officer gun on his hip to this day I don't know if that was real or just wishful thinking my dad was a police officer back home in Washington my last memory of that horrible night was being wheeled on a gurney toward the double doors of an emergency room someone putting a mask over my mouth telling me I was going to taste strawberries 10 Nine, eight, seven, lights out. I woke up in a hospital room, a doctor telling me that they had put 10 stitches down there, that I was lucky. They were invisible stitches that would magically disappear. I would be good as new. As a healer, I'm sure he didn't mean any harm by this language, but that was the precursor to the total burial of what had happened to me. After that came the blame.
6: What I remember is... I was just mortified, and I was scared the next night.
0: But hold on, Mom. Go to that night. I know it's painful, but go to that night. Well,
6: no, I blocked it out. I don't remember. No, know,
0: but I think you can remember. I know it's there. You must have heard me screaming because you came and turned on the light, and I remember you turning on the light, and there was blood on the sheets. And I remember I was wearing a uh, like little house on the prairie like type nightgown because that's what Cheryl and I loved to wear back then. And I just had no idea what had happened. And then I remember being somehow taken to the emergency room. I don't know if it was in an ambulance or what. And then I remember being strolled on a gurney and they're saying, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You know, you're just going to go to sleep. And then literally they were like 10, 9, and then I was asleep and then I woke up. And I remember kind of talking to people about it, about what had happened, and then having that feeling that coupled with the polarities, you having some kind of weird toxic sexual energy that had... Oh, difference.
6: they completely blamed me.
0: But let's talk about how that went down. So you don't remember at this point, you don't remember what anything that happened that night.
6: No, I remember then, what what I remember is the next day, or I think it was the next day, you know, they had a a meeting and we were outside and they were blaming me, they being the hierarchy of of polarity.
0: Let me guess, all men?
6: No, they were uh, a lot of, uh, well, you're right. It was the men that were, I think that they were, which was totally crazy, but they said, I had so much sexual energy, I drew this to you.
0: Did you believe that at the time? I hope
6: not. You know...
0: I mean, that's obviously why you can't remember what happened, because they dished it out on you.
6: Right, and I, I it was just another blaming thing where I was being blamed for something that, you know, kind of like how your dad was, you know, blaming me for all kinds of shit, stuff.
0: <laughs> well, didn't you- Didn't they say I don't want to get off topic, so let's stay on this topic because I I feel like we're almost to the end of it. I know it's painful, but, you know, it's it's kind of a really important piece, especially if we can't. Well, I'm sorry. I just
6: um, I don't I have blocked it out. I just remember. Them. Blaming me, you know, for all and and I felt so bad for my daughter.
0: Soon after the attack. Polarity leaders kicked us out of the commune. My mom would later tell me the elders said I was sexually assaulted because she had a lot of negative sexual energy. And that negative sexual energy was transferred to me. It was our shame to own. It was my fault, and I drew,
6: you know, all this sexual energy.
0: And what did you say to that? Did you just sit there crying, or, like, what did you... No, what did you- I
6: just, I, I, well, I think I was stunned that they would you know, I mean, I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't partying. I wasn't, you know, I was trying to heal myself. I was doing colonics all the time. What's that? Cleansing of your intestines. Oh, okay. You know, eating good food, trying to be, uh, you know, make a better life for us. You know, I dragged us all down here and I was trying to heal my body because I wanted to be, always wanted to be a better person, better, so I could earn more money, you know, um, because I was always broke.
0: I vaguely remember speaking with the detective about what had happened, but the overall experience as a small child was that this was somehow my fault, that I deserved what had happened to me because we were living an alternative lifestyle. Because my mom had given them all her money and worldly possessions to join the commune, which included selling our family home back in Washington, we were on the streets. And a little part of my sister died inside when my dad said I had a one-time offer to come live with him. Just me. My mom awaited my reply, her green eyes barely visible beneath a blur of tears. I knew choosing to take that one-way ticket would be the last brick on her back before being tossed overboard into the sea. I would never leave my mother or my sister. The reactions of the adults to the news of the assault were painful. Whispery teachers and administrators at school looking at me with pity, teetering towards something new. It was like I was dirty. What had happened at the hands of someone else had somehow made me a bad girl. My response was to bury it. If no one knew that it happened, it didn't happen. I told my mother and my sister to never speak of it again, referring to the incident only as when that happened to me. And we collectively buried it. And it's so traumatic for both of us in different ways that we can't even remember or pinpoint exactly when it happened. I mean, I feel like I was eight or nine, which would have been uh, 1979. I don't think you were that old. I mean, we're trying to find the the date, and we just can't. My attacker was never caught. The fact that he tried to come back has haunted me throughout my childhood. You know, I wonder if that person he didn't do finish his deed, so he came back
6: the next day, next evening.
0: Talk about what happened the next night.
6: Well, I was i before I'd never locked the doors, so after that happened. I made sure I locked all the doors. And um, the person, somebody came. I, I was frozen. I couldn't believe I couldn't move. I was so scared because something must have happened. I just couldn't believe I was so scared that I couldn't move for my daughter to find out who it was.
0: What was it? Was it a sound? with somebody jiggling the door lock? No,
6: somebody was trying to get in.
0: Oh, my gosh.
6: And I was too scared to move, literally. I mean, I still remember I just couldn't believe I couldn't move, even you know, to find out who did this to my daughter. But I was so scared.
0: And what happened? They went away? They went away. And they never came back?
6: Never came back.
0: I mean, that is truly frightening. And maybe I heard that too. And that's why I've never, the person always coming back. Mm-hmm. And that this person has never been found. And then when I saw you know, all these girls being pulled from these green spaces in the lake. I mean, you remember it was in every news report and you <laughs> loved watching the news. I know. Like, I can't remember a specific time. Oh, that's when I saw it. I just feel like it was always, always there, always there in the news. I mean, do you remember that? Yeah, of course. I had no idea that researching the GRK investigation would lead me to investigate my own case One of the most challenging things I've ever done in my life was submitting a public disclosure request to the Santa Barbara Police Department. As a reporter, I've done this hundreds of times, but this was the first time I had done this with my own case. This feeling of vulnerability was something I spoke to the producer of this show, Brandon Morgan.
8: You're a a, a task force of one, right? When it comes to the Carol Osorio case, not like The thousands that they had in the green and yellow jackets up in seattle you know it's it's you trying to solve a crime that you seem to be the only one who who wants the answers to so it's uh sisyphean at best Uh, but um yeah
0: when i was calling to get the information and it was like it sucked yeah because i couldn't I was approaching it like a reporter, and there's so much safety there for me. And then to be treated like a victim, it was like, Ooh, oof, wow. Wow. Yeah. It hasn't gotten easier for me to say that I was sexually assaulted. I am damn lucky to have survived that attack, and I know that it could have been so much worse. He had come back, and deep down, I always knew that he had. I had heard the jiggling of that door, I had buried that too. That was the reason I was carrying around that knife. The GRK news reports confirmed what I already had a taste of, the ultimate price a girl could pay for a man's lust and violence. Had my attacker come to finish what he had started, to drag me out into the night? I lived in fear that he would come back, and I'd been carrying that butcher knife like a yoke around my neck for decades. The blame, the shame... I tried to leave that shame in the shadows, and the burial of it came at a high price. I see now how damaging burying that attack had become. Without resolution, it had left me flying blind for decades. Was it someone from the commune? Were there other victims? Were the commune patriarchs trying to hush up a larger conspiracy? Was it even possible to find justice after so many years? Hi, this is Monica. Hey, Veronica, this is Carolyn Osorio, and I reached out to you a couple of months ago regarding looking for some old records related to an incident that happened to me when I was a child.
3: Yes, I think, oh, now I recall. I did email you back to your email, and I um, let you know that we couldn't find anything with the information that you provided.
0: I'm not done researching, but what will make me really sad and mad is if a case was never filed. next time on The Shadow Girls. We go back to the Green River, where the GRK finally tells investigators what he did to the so-called river victims, and it would turn out more twisted and grotesque than anything we could have imagined.
8: After Cofield and Bonner was hung up underneath, so I don't think she was being been fought for a long time until somebody saw her, and there'd be no evidence And when I, you know, I started putting rocks on them, and that kept people from finding my women. So... By the
5: time you started putting rocks on them, had your point of view was your point of view shifting to the not wanting to be found? Not
8: wanting to be found, and more of my possession, and,
5: and uh, so you were then feeling more possessive about them and wanting to be able to visit them.
8: Mm-hmm.
5: And so, did you go back and visit the women in the river?
8: Well, like for instance, uh, I'd pull one in the river, Bonner. I didn't go back because I, I was going to kill another one in the next days. You knew already you were going to
5: kill one the
8: next day? Yeah, and that was going to be where my rest of my women were going to be dumped off. You already knew at that point you were going to go out the next day? I was always going out the next day, no matter what. But no, I was going to plan, put another woman in that in that same area.
5: What, so by that point, what you're saying to me was that in a matter of a few months, you were gone from going over the line from thinking about killing to actually killing. And then you went to from killing the first time and having a little bit, and the second time and having a little bit of conflict inside of yourself about whether you wanted to get found or not, to going over the next line of knowing that you were going to kill the very next day. correct? So mm-hmm. what was your feeling, what were your feelings like at that time, at the time you went over the line to knowing that you were going to be killing the next day? What does it feel like to have those kind of feelings?
8: describe uh they were feelings of uh possession for the bodies they're they're my they're, they're my women and i mean control of their you know being found and i was i was getting more twisted like with cofield i didn't go back and have sex with her with the three in, in the cluster there i went back and had sex with two of them i didn't get a chance to have sex with the third one
0: The Shadow Girls is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Our producer is Brandon Morgan. We're executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio. Our post-production supervisor is Casey Wayland. Supervising sound editor, Victoria Cheng. Edited by Michael Dean Wilkins.